Uh, Grab a Bible and turn with me. We're in our second to last sermon in the letter to the Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 16. So grab a Bible and turn to the last chapter in Hebrews. And again, this is the second to last sermon in in Hebrews. I can't believe that. That's amazing. Um, This morning, we're 13, 9 through 16. And some of you guys know this if you have Jewish friends uh, but coming up on September 15th and 16th, it begins at sundown, uh, uh, Yom Kippur, which is the, probably the most important uh, spiritual holiday for our Jewish friends. Uh, that's coming up in just a week and a half. And I was looking at that on the calendar, and it was just not ironic, but it was neat how that celebration that's coming up for, for our friends that are Jewish uh, is, is going hand in hand with what we're going to be talking about today. Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement that we read about in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. And, uh, and today, and for the last 2,000 years, it has been a bloodless celebration. What do I mean by that? It's been a bloodless celebration because there hasn't been a temple or a priesthood or a high priest to do the animal sacrifices that were laid out in Leviticus 16, which is the chapter in the Old Testament that lays out what to do on the Day of Atonement. And so today, it's mostly done through synagogues and rabbinical leadership, and they have different things they do traditionally. Uh, but very, a, a modern Jewish person would, would, as much as I wouldn't have a context for what was going on in first century Judaism with these Jewish background believers that were being written to in the, in the letter to the Hebrews, it would be very hard even for a modern Jewish person to, to, to think in, in those terms. Uh, very different 2,000 years ago. And actually, uh, Yom Kippur and, and the Day of Atonement is the culmination of the Jewish sacrificial system. All throughout the year, there's all these different uh, animal sacrifices that happen, and, and Yom Kippur is really the, the culmination of that. And again, it's described in Leviticus 16 and elsewhere, but mainly Leviticus 16, and that is the chapter that serves as a backdrop, an Old Testament backdrop, to our passage today is Leviticus 16. Uh, the Day of Atonement, according to Scripture, was the only day of the year that the high priest in Jerusalem could enter into the most holy of holies, the inner sanctum within the temple, and before that, within the tabernacle. That was where the very presence of God dwelt on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And this was the only day that somebody could go in there and it was only the high priest who could do it. We talked about this a little bit back in chapters uh, uh, 6 through 10. But it was that only, only that person on that day and only when they brought the blood of a sin offering for themselves and for the people to sprinkle on the, the elements of the Holy of Holies and on the elements of the tabernacle. Only covered by the blood of an innocent victim that paid the price, the penalty for their sins, could the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies. That's really important, okay? And as we've seen throughout Hebrews, this, this old covenant ritual ultimately foreshadowed the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, that Jesus, whose name means God saves, whose name means salvation, became our great high priest. That's the great call of the letter to the Hebrews, that Jesus is our great high priest, who all the other high priests look forward to and all the other ritual sacrifices look forward to. He has become our great high priest 
who would sacrificially offer up his life on the cross to atone for our sins, who would become our once and for all sin offering, that once and for all offering, the innocent victim who would die and shed its blood to cover our sins. And he became that. And that's, of course, what we celebrate today. By, coming, by becoming our once and for all sin offering, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and inaugurated the new covenant. That crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his, his resurrection, ascension into heaven, and the beginning of his priestly ministry uh, at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly holy of holies that we've read about over these last months, that, that fulfilled the old covenant and it inaugurated the new covenant. And according to Leviticus 16, the sin offerings were to be followed by these burnt offerings. And we're going to talk about all these offerings and sacrifices throughout this time, but the burnt offerings that came after the sin offerings on the Day of Atonement, they represented or symbolized the total spiritual commitment of God's people. That's what burnt offerings were. They, were, they, were, they didn't eat any of it. It was completely burned up on the altar. And it was a symbol of the complete and total devotion of God's people having been cleansed by the sin offering, they could now consecrate themselves wholly to God. So Yom Kippur was, was an annual reminder for 1,500 years leading up to, to Jesus. It was an annual reminder of what it meant to be God's people, cleansed of sin by none other than God's grace and consecrated wholly unto God's holy purposes. That's what Yom Kippur was. As New Covenant believers, I think we sometimes struggle with what it means to be a Christian. I don't think I'm alone in that. You know, what, what does it mean? I mean, we pick up all sorts of ideas, especially if we grow up in the church. And sometimes we just need to be set straight. Like, this is what it means to be a Christian. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. He knew that these Jewish background believers in the first century would struggle with what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? All they had known was Old Covenant Judaism. Okay? And so he, he finishes his letter with this wonderfully succinct list or description of the commitments of the Christian life. And this is the last reminder. Again, this is a second to last sermon before we finish. It's one last reminder of our Christian commitments. The big idea for today, and you can see it on your sheets, is that the new covenant calls us to a life of commitment. That is what our life is all about is a life of commitment. So we need to know what is expected of us. We need to know what this commitment to Christ ought to look like. And today's passage is going to lay out three basic Christian commitments. Number one, our commitment to the gospel. We have to be gospel-centered people. We have to have gospel-centered local churches. We have to be committed to the gospel. Number two, our commitment to Christian discipleship. Now, we have to look at what that means because, again, as we go through this Christian life, we're going to pick up things that, that maybe aren't that important. Uh, we may, we may uh, not focus on things that are important in terms of discipleship. It's one of those church words that gets a lot of baggage depending on what your traditions were and all these other things. That's number two, our commitment to discipleship. And finally, what we're going to look at today, and it's so beautiful is our commitment to Christian worship. And I mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. Uh, our commitment to Christian worship, because I really do think we have 
oftentimes, and this is true of me as well, we've reduced worship, the idea of worship, to a lowest common denominator. It, it really just becomes singing during the worship set on a Sunday morning, hour and a half long service, or, or, or longer, depending on your tradition. That's often what we think about. We're going to look at that today, our commitment to Christian worship. So first thing first, as New Covenant believers, we must be committed to the gospel. We must be committed to the gospel. The gospel, folks, kids, kids, this bears repeating, all right? Because someday you're going to get to share this with somebody who doesn't know it, who doesn't have hope in Christ. And when they say, what is the gospel? Y'all talk about the gospel all the time. What is it? The gospel is the good news that Jesus has permanently cleansed us as our once and for all sin offering. The gospel is the, is the as we say in our house, it's, it's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. Now there's more things you can add to that about forgiveness and eternal life and, and exactly how that happened in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. But in the context of today's passage, the good news is that Jesus has permanently cleansed us from sin. That is so important, guys, because you're going to hit times in your life where you think, I'm a filthy, wretched human being. And the only hope you're going to have in those moments is the gospel, that you have been cleansed of your sin through faith in Jesus Christ. In uh, chapter 13, verses 9 through 12, we see two important aspects of this good news. First, we're going to see that our obedience cannot cleanse us from sin. It cannot provide that permanent benefit that only Christ can. All those Old Covenant, Old Testament sacrifices. And then secondly, we're going to see that Christ's obedience can and does cleanse us from sin. So in verses 9, 10, and 11, we see that obedience to the law, that is the Old Covenant under the law of Moses... That can never cleanse us from sins. We get no permanent benefit from that. Certainly not today. Even before Jesus, it looked forward to him. But if we're still under old covenant, we're still trying to follow the law of Moses for salvation or something like this, then that certainly has no actual spiritual benefit to us. So it could never cleanse us of our sins. I'm going to start in verse 9. It says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart the center of your person. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? By grace, by this unmerited favor of God. And that, that's all the new covenant blessings that come through Jesus Christ. And he says, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar. He's talking about new covenant believers, Christians. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. That's that old covenant priesthood. That's that old covenant worship that we now have an altar that they have no right to eat from or to benefit from the, the grace. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Now we're going to move further into this, but the idea here is that as Christians, we are strengthened by God's grace. We are strengthened by grace in Christ. And this includes all the blessings of the new covenant that are made available through his sacrificial work on the cross and his current priestly ministry in heaven. We are the beneficiaries of these things as new covenant believers, as Christians. In verse 9, foods, it's a little bit uh, ambiguous. 
that foods, it could refer to old covenant dietary laws, which were supposed to make a person ceremonially clean if they ate this and didn't eat that. It could be referring to that. Uh, In verse 10, we see eating. So there's a connection with food. Uh, That eating from an altar probably refers to the portion of an animal sacrifice that was given for food to the priests. That portion of a sin or guilt offering or, or other offerings that was given to the priests to nourish the Levitical priests, right, that was under the old covenant. Well, they have no right to eat from this new altar that we have in Christ. And in light of the new covenant, in light of the fact that the old has been fulfilled and the new has been inaugurated, that these dietary laws and these ceremonial meals, they're fulfilled in Christ. He fulfills them. They point in towards him. And, and these things, these dietary laws, these ceremonial meals, they can no longer provide any sort of benefit, certainly no spiritual benefit to a worshiper or even to the actual priests who are still serving in the temple until its destruction in the first century. In fact, just as the priests couldn't eat from the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, that's what's happening in, in Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, and on other days, they could eat from the sacrifices. On the Day of Atonement, the priests could not eat from those sacrifices, neither the sin offerings nor the burnt offerings. And the author's using that reality, that fact of that they couldn't eat from the altar on that day, uh, to, to point to the fact that they could neither benefit from the sacrifice of Christ, the altar of Christ, the cross, without believing in Jesus as the fulfillment of those old covenant sacrifices. Does that make sense? That without believing in Jesus, that he's the Messiah, that he fulfilled the old covenant, you can't derive any spiritual benefit from that altar. In fact, you don't see that as an altar. You see that as a person that deserved to die getting killed by the Romans. Okay? Obedience to the old covenant laws only provided temporary benefits for the worshipers and the priests. It was temporary. It was time-bound until the time of Christ. But that obedience, even the obedience to the Old Covenant, it wasn't a bad thing to obey the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses. But even that obedience could never provide a permanent spiritual cleansing from sin. And you've been hearing this over and over again in the letter to the Hebrews. Even the Law of Moses was never given for the establishment of righteousness. It was given to point to our ultimate source of righteousness in Jesus Christ In verse 12, we see that the obedience of Christ can cleanse us from sins. Look at this and how simple and beautiful this is. Verse 12 says, Therefore, Jesus also, he's making the comparison to the Old Testament Day of Atonement. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify, set apart, make holy the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, according to verse 10, Christians have a new altar. And some people disagree on exactly what that's talking about. It's either Christ himself, or it's the cross on which Christ died, or it's the heavenly altar that he presented his sacrificial death on to to God. I, I take it to be, it's the cross. It's a reference to the cross because the cross is, is a symbol of Christ's sacrificial death. It symbolizes, it's where he gave up his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And believing that Jesus died for our sins, guys, it is, it is that which provides us with spiritual cleansing. You feel like a wretched, filthy person for the things you think and the things you do and the things you fail to do? What's the answer? To try really hard to scrub yourself down and, and clean yourself up? 
so that you can be presentable to God? I love it. Sadie's shaking her head. No, it's simply by believing that Jesus has died for our sins as our sin offering on the cross and allowing that beautiful gospel truth to wash over us and restore in us a sense of hope and peace in Christ. And we can also metaphorically feast. Do you remember in John 6 where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Who has eternal life? Person that works really hard at it? No. He who believes has eternal life. And then you know what he says? That's that famous verse. He says, I am the bread of life. And he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Kids, do your ears perk up when I say that? That's what he wanted his original followers. He wanted their ears to perk up. They say, what? We have to eat your flesh and drink your blood, Jesus? What is he saying? He's saying, I can provide you with life, sustaining life and nourishment spiritually, eternal life, nothing less, through simply believing in me. That's how we feast on the sacrifice of Christ. We don't eat the actual right thigh of a ram anymore but we, we, we metaphorically feast on Christ through faith in Him. And that, that not only provides us with life, but it also provides us with spiritual nourishment for growth along the way. The unbelieving uh, Jewish people in Jerusalem that caused, particularly the religious leaders, but even the crowds that caused Jesus to be crucified, they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the one foretold of in the, in the Old Testament. They didn't believe that. That's why they killed him, right? And instead, what did they do? They, they treated him, instead of treating him like the Holy Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One, all these wonderful Old Testament, how did they treat him? The one who was clean. They, they beat him up, is that what you said? They beat him up. They treated him as unclean. The clean one was called unclean. They separated themselves from him. They they spit on him. They beat him up. They ultimately crucified him. And where did they crucify him? Was it in the city? He was unclean, right? They thought he was. So what did they do with him? The same thing they did with the sin offering on the Day of Atonement that could not be eaten from. They disposed of it outside the gates of the city because it was so filthy and unclean and it was defiling. Its presence in the camp of the people of God was defiling, so they had to bring it outside the camp and burn it up, get rid of it. And that's what they did. That's what we do to Jesus, is we treat him as the unclean one, not the clean one. Uh, They graphically portrayed him as the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, which could not be eaten by the priests and had to be completely burned outside the camp. The gospel, folks, is the good news that his perfect obedience, despite all that that he went through, even death on a cruel Roman cross, the gospel is the fact that his perfect obedience is now attributed by God to us through faith. We're the unclean ones. And now his cleanness, his his status of being clean before God, being called righteous and justified and perfect and clean, and perfectly obedient is is attributed to us now through faith in Him. That's the gospel. And that is a beautiful thing. This cleanses us from our sins. So as New Covenant believers, we must be committed to this gospel. Uh, There's a book. I love this author. His name is Jerry Bridges. And he wrote a book called The Discipline of Grace. 
And in it, he wrote this. Now listen, this is so simple. It's going to come up on the screen. Jerry Bridges writes, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And folks, that's probably some of the best spiritual advice I've ever received. I can't tell you how often what my heart does and what my mind does is it strays away from the truth of the gospel. I don't have to ask you to raise your hands. Yours does too. And that's the fight in this life is that our hearts and minds stray from the truth of the gospel. No wonder we end up feeling discouraged and hopeless at times, right? Because we strayed away from that basic core truth, that commitment to the gospel. As New Covenant believers, we must be committed to the gospel. Folks, this is exactly why we need biblical community. If you're ever like, yeah, this whole church thing, I don't know about it. I can just watch YouTube videos of famous pastors and sit at home. No, you cannot. We need biblical community because we need to be reminded of the gospel constantly. And that's not just some talking head on a video screen. That's people that intimately know us. That's people that are getting to know us better and better. That's what we need. And those are the people that know how to not just say, hey, John 3.16, the gospel. They can actually help us apply it in our circumstances, the struggles that we're facing, the hardships the doubts, the despair. And that's why we need biblical community. And here at Wayside, one of the best ways to do that is simply to commit to a group, a men's or women's discipleship group. Are you going to be in there with people like, that just totally agree with you on everything and you love them and they, just, like, they would have been your best friends in college? No. But by God's grace, there are going to be people that lean into you and help remind you, and that you lean into their lives to help remind them of the importance of the gospel. If you're already in a group, commit yourself to a gospel-centered approach to encouragement, to correction, and to prayer. Guys, people don't need not the gospel in, in your encouragement and your advice. What they need is the gospel. What I need is the gospel. Kids, I've got an application for you. How can you constantly remind yourselves of the truth of the gospel? What could you do in your life, in your day-to-day routine with school and everything else, to remind yourself of the truth of the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again? I would offer you this. Just have your parents, or if you're at this stage, you can do it yourself. Write out John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And just stick that, that verse on your, on your mirror. Just put it up there and look at it every day. Memorize it. That is going to be what carries you through the rest of your life, folks. But being committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ is so much more than just memorizing a Bible verse. We all know that. As New, as new Covenant believers, we must be committed to a life of Christian discipleship. But what does that crazy word mean? That's a church word. So we pack all sorts of different baggage into that. Let's look at how the author of Hebrews looks at that. Christian discipleship. A disciple is a learner. It's a student. You're a learner of Christ, a disciple of Christ. And I'm not talking about a program or a Bible study or anything like that. That's all helpful and good. I'm talking about what's at the core of Christian discipleship that we have to be committed to. It's a wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ himself. I can give you all the programs and Bible studies ad nauseum, and if there's not a core, wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is never perfect, and we're always kind of going in and out of our commitment and all this stuff, another reason we need biblical community, 
But at the core of Christian discipleship is that giving of yourself to Christ. It's that, that, that total submission, that commitment to him, okay? Um, in, in verses 13 and 14, we see this commitment characterized by our relationship to an earthly city. I love how the author of Hebrews, remember we've already talked about heavenly Jerusalem, and we've talked about earthly Jerusalem. Well, he's going to bring that right back into our passage. In verse 13, we as followers of Christ are called to leave this old earthly city. He says, so let us go out to him. Where is Jesus? Where was he crucified for our sins? In the city? Outside the gates. So he says, let us leave this old earthly city and go out to Jesus outside the gates, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And given the context of Hebrews, the camp here, he goes between camp and city, and there's a lot of meaning in that. But the camp in the Old Testament context was the camp of Israel as they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years before going into the promised land. That's where the Day of Atonement originated, was when they were camping out in the wilderness with the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle was set up in the middle of the camp, there's this whole other rabbit trail we could go on. At one point, the the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, was outside the camp. And I don't even have time to, like, pick that apart, but it's so fascinating. And they would have to leave the camp to go out to commune with God, with, with Joshua, Jesus, and Moses. And Joshua would stay at the tent of meeting when Moses... There's all sorts of cool stuff packed in there. We can nerd out over coffee sometime. I've got to move on. Uh, but when they finally... When the, when the tabernacle was in the center of the camp, uh, nothing unclean could come close to it. There was these concentric circles of proximity. And if you were unclean by any reason set forth in the law, you had to leave the camp. You had to go. And you had to be ritually cleansed in order to come back into the camp and into the presence of God. So on the Day of Atonement, what did they do with these unclean, defiling carcasses of these sin offerings for the sins of the people? What did they do with them? Well, they were considered unclean, so they took them outside the gates and burned them outside the town. And the gospel, I mean, this is so cool. Just geek out on this with me for a second. What does the gospel do? What does the new covenant do? It flips this Old Testament reality completely on its head. And and this would have been shocking for a first century Jewish person. And we don't realize that because we're not seeing this through their eyes, but I promise you, the gospel would have been shocking to a first century Jewish person that was only uh, knowledgeable about the old covenant ways up before Jesus came. But, but the, the, the gospel flips this on its head, and according to the old covenant, the sin offering was sent away from the tabernacle. Where was God's presence? It was in the city. It was in the camp. It was in the temple or the tabernacle. Right? That's where God's presence was. So unclean stuff had to go where? It had to go outside, away from the temple. It had to go away from the city, away from the camp, and be burned outside. And that symbolized God's presence at the center of the Israel camp and his unwillingness to, to his inability to allow unclean, defiled things in his holy presence. Then look at what the new covenant does. According to the new covenant, God the Son, the Holy One from heaven, comes down in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who becomes our great high priest, who offers himself as our ultimate sin offering. And because of the sin of God's people, because the the camp was so 
rotten with sin and defilement. They saw him as sinful and defiling in their sin and defilement and sent the one who was clean and called him unclean and sent him outside the camp. And so then where was the presence of God? It was no longer in the temple. It was no longer in the city. It was outside the camp in the person of Jesus Christ. Our holy Savior was considered unclean by the priests who sent him outside Jerusalem's gate to be sacrificed on the cross. The whole thing gets flipped on its head. For first century Jews, that meant that the temple in Jerusalem was no longer associated with God's presence. That's why he destroyed it. That's why the Romans came in in AD 70 and and destroyed it, because it was no longer filled with God's presence. Jesus had become the temple. Jesus had become, it says in John 1, he came and tabernacled amongst us. He put skin on himself and tabernacled in our midst. It's amazing. So instead of looking to the Old Covenant, New Covenant believers are called to go out of the camp of Israel, which was the earthly Jerusalem. And for a first century Jew, that meant what? What did they keep blaming all the Christians for? They're talking bad about the temple. They're talking bad about the law of Moses. They're talking bad about the priesthood. Well, they weren't talking bad about it. They were talking truthfully about it. That God wasn't in that. That the old covenant had been fulfilled in Christ the Messiah. And that's why they got, they were called blasphemers. That's one of the reasons that Romans thought Christians were atheists. That's one of the reasons Jews who didn't trust in Christ thought Christians were atheists. Because there was no physical thing No place, no tent, no building, no animal sacrifice, right? Uh, But what did that mean for first century Jew? And we've already seen it in this letter. It meant being ostracized from your family and friends. It meant being disinherited from your inheritance. It meant being abused, being mocked, being ill-treated, being imprisoned. And ultimately for many, it included losing your life, being martyred for your beliefs. And even so, even even with all of that on the line, we are called as Christians to leave the old earthly city. And you know what the Greek word for church, ekklesia, it means called out. That's literally what ekklesia means. We are called out as the church. In verse 14, we are called not just to leave the old earthly city, but to look forward to a new heavenly city. Verse 14, for here we do not have a lasting city. I don't care how hard we try, it's just a sandcastle that's going to get washed away when the tide rises. That's our kingdoms, that's our cities, that's our earthly efforts. Okay? We don't have a lasting city here. But, he says, we are seeking the city which is to come. Guys, this is the great hope of the letter to the Hebrews. Is that as Christians, we have become citizens of God's new covenant community. We've already come to that heavenly Jerusalem. In a way, we, in a spiritual sense, we've already arrived. Remember we talked about that? We have approached the heavenly Jerusalem. In some sense, we're already there in Christ, in a spiritual sense. But we're awaiting and we're looking forward to a future where that will be our physical and spiritual reality. That we, as God's new covenant people, will be around Jesus Christ and God the Father, glorifying Him in this heavenly Jerusalem that comes down to earth in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. 
And we've, we've already come to it, but we're also looking forward to it as well at the return of Christ. And in the meantime, as New Covenant believers, we must be committed to a life of Christian discipleship that reflects our heavenly citizenship, even as we face suffering, even as we are called to make sacrifices in this life. Uh, I mentioned earlier that there were two types of sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. There were sin offerings and there were burnt offerings. And the two rams, the sin offerings were a bull and a goat, and there was another goat called a scapegoat. We'll talk about some other time. But those were the sin offerings. The two uh, burnt offerings for the high priest and the people were rams. Okay? And these rams were offered as burnt offerings. And, and, and again, they were completely burned up on the altar. There was nothing left to, to partake of. And, and these were symbols of a total commitment to the Lord. That is to be fully set apart to the Lord and His purposes. And this, this sort of total commitment is what we might call in our parlance today being all in to use a a poker analogy, but being all in for Christ. And rarely in our culture, and this is just true, rarely in our culture here in the States do we experience the full weight, the full weightiness of what it means to be all in for Christ. And the reason I know that is because I just read, like a week ago, I read a story, an article, and it was from Uganda. And it was from, uh, we're looking at, you know, helping start a school in, in this country. And it's primarily a Christian country, but some of the precincts in the, I think the East and Southeast are now a uh, Muslim majority. And so there was a young man, 18 years old, and he heard the gospel and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. And his father was away and his family became unglued at this. And they said, you gotta, you gotta uh, deny Jesus Christ. You gotta deny him. You gotta come back into the fold. His father gets home you got to deny him. He says, I am an adult. I can choose to believe what I want. And I'm not going to deny Jesus Christ, my Lord, who has saved me. And his father brutally murdered him. And I won't go over the details of it. But because he wouldn't come back into the fold, his own father murdered him. 18-year-old guy, follower of Jesus Christ. He put it all on the line. And he went to his death for his Lord, knowing that he had eternal life in Christ. As New Covenant believers, we can be committed to a life of Christian discipleship. And we can trust in Christ to help us face fierce persecution. The most difficult stuff you can imagine, even death for our faith. We can face through our commitment to Christ and the way he nurtures and cares for us and shepherds us. Hebrews has several examples of people that leave their cities to fully commit to God and his purposes. We saw this back in chapter 11. Uh, Abram, who became Abraham, he left Ur. He left Mesopotamia and came out to, he didn't know where. He was just following God. Moses had everything you could imagine in Egypt and he left it all. And it actually says in Hebrews, uh, he considered the reproach of Christ better than the riches and treasures of Egypt. Uh, And of course, Jesus, who willingly separated himself from his own people and allowed himself to be rejected by his own people uh, in order to die for their sins, in order to die for our sins. And in each case, when those individuals led by God left those cities, in each case, salvation happened, redemption happened. Abram became the father of faith, right? He became the blessing, or through him became the blessing to all the families of the earth, including his old neighbors back in Mesopotamia. Moses became the great deliverer for God's people and for some of the Egyptians. And of course, with Jesus, 
salvation came through that separation when he was willing to leave the city. He didn't set up shop in Jerusalem. He could have. He could have grabbed the mantle of king and said, I'm powerful. I can heal people. I can do all this. That's what they wanted him to do. We want you to be king. He didn't. He knew he had to first be savior before he was king, before he came back as king. And I think this is an important principle for us to keep in mind that we cannot love the city. Listen, just hear me on this. We cannot love the city until we're willing to leave the city. Kids, you cannot love that classroom of kids that you see five days a week, every other week, until you're willing to leave your classroom. Do I mean you need to walk out while your teacher's teaching you? No, and I'm going to explain that. For a first century Jew, this meant leaving Judaism and bearing the reproach of friends and family. These believers, these followers of Christ, these Jewish background believers that this letter is written to, had to be willing to walk away from their families, to walk away from the approval of their parents, to risk being mocked and even persecuted, put in prison and killed for their faith, so that what? So that they could turn back around and be called out by God, not to ditch the city, not to ditch their family and neighbors, but to come back with real hope and to bring that hope to those same people that persecuted them. Folks, kids, if if you're not willing to be made fun of for your faith in Jesus Christ by your classmates, you will never be able to go to them with that hope. Guys, if you're not willing to be uh, made fun of by your group of non-Christian friends or the people you work with, if you're not willing to walk away in that sense and be okay with their approach, you're not going to turn around with the boldness in Christ and, and bring the, the, the life-giving gospel to them. And I won't either. Okay? Uh, in the same way, our city, Austin, Texas, our culture has rejected Jesus. I'm not saying there's no Christians here. I'm just saying more and more we see this, and we see it in other countries even more so. But people have rejected the idea of sin. People have rejected the idea of a holy creator God who cannot abide sin. People have rejected the need for a Savior. Well, if there's no sin and there's no holy God that we're separated from, then what's a Savior all about? People have, our, our city has rejected Jesus. If we try to hold on to our citizenship here, if we try to hold on, make everybody like us, seek everybody's approval around us, we're going to be rendered powerless for the gospel. We're never going to have the courage to stand for Christ, but if we forsake our earthly, our earthly citizenship, if we give up our citizenship, if we give up our desire to be approved of by this earthly city, so to speak, then What? then we'll be able to love our neighbors the way Christ did without fearing their reproach. They can mock you and say you're crazy, but I guarantee you some are going to go, where are you getting that boldness? Where are you finding that peace? Where are you able to produce that love for others? And they will trust in Christ. Kids, what would your best friends think if they knew you believed in Jesus? What would your best friends think? Maybe they are Christians. Maybe they think that's great. So do I. But what would your best friend think if they knew that you believe that Jesus Christ, God the Son, came down to earth, died for our sins on the cross, lived a perfect life, died for our sins on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and that through believing in Him, you can have eternal life and forgiveness, a reconciled relationship with God. What what would they think of you if, if they knew that? 
And what would be the worst thing that would happen if they found out or if you told them? What would be the worst thing? Think about it. They might not want to play with you on the playground, I guess. I don't know. Who knows? But I think it's important for us to consider the costs. We must be committed to the truth of the gospel so that we will live our lives boldly and purposefully as disciples of Christ. And folks, this leads to our third and last basic Christian commitment, and that is as New Covenant believers, we must be committed to a life of Christian worship. And this is exciting. I love this because it helps us better understand what that is. The New Testament refers to Christian worship with sacrificial language from the Old Testament. This is exciting. In verses 15 and 16, we already saw it. Remember at the end of chapter 12, an acceptable service. That word service is the word for worship. It's the priestly worship at the tabernacle. It's also for uh, idolaters worship, but an acceptable service. So we're using this uh, priestly sacrificial language. Um, And we see basically in verses 15 and 16, two basic categories of new covenant sacrifices. This is Christian worship. I love it. Words of praise and works of love. I can't get any simpler than that. What is Christian worship? According to the author of Hebrews right here. It's words of praise to God and it's works of love's works of love for others, toward others. Let's look at that. In verse 15, we're called to worship God with the sacrifice of praise. Through him, then, the author writes, let us continually. Over and over and over again, it's a lifestyle. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Now, can we do that in a worship set on Sunday morning? You better believe it. But can we do that every other moment of our lives? You better believe it. A a big part of our Christian worship is simply thanking God for, for who he is and for what he's done and for what he is doing and for what he will do, what he's promised to do. That's a big part of Christian worship. And we can do that individually in prayer. We can do it together as the church or as a family. We can share it with others. In verse 16, we're also called to worship God with the sacrifices of love. He says, and this is our last verse, he says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So this is basically a summary of what we saw back in Hebrews at the beginning of the chapter, in Hebrews 1 through, uh, 13, 1 through 7. You remember all those? Showing hospitality to strangers and love for the brethren, brethren brothers and sisters. Remember all these? This is, like, this is like a summary of that. Doing good is pretty general. We get it. We know what that means. Doing good, right? But then you get to sharing, and that's the word koinonia. That's the word for fellowship. And again, it's so much deeper and richer than sometimes we give it credit for. But this idea of sharing is a specific charge to share what we have with others and especially with others in our church family, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's Christian worship is when you share what God has given you with others and particularly with brothers and sisters in Christ. I love that. Kids, I know it's easy to go, that's mine, and this is mine, and that's mine, and these are my toys, and all this. We do it too as adults, by the way. We don't call them toys. That's easy to do, but that's not Christian worship. Christian worship is going, look at what God's given me, and looking around to see who I might give it to, who it might benefit around me, okay? When we make such sacrifices to love others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ that have been blood bought through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, 
then what does it say in the passage? Then God is pleased and we are doing the acceptable service that we were called to back at the beginning of this section in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. That's the acceptable service. As New Covenant believers, we must be committed to a life of Christian worship, and that means words of praise to God and works of love for others that glorify God. So beautiful. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest offered up what kinds of sins? Two kinds. Sin, I'm sorry, what kind of offerings? Sin offerings and burnt offerings. Those were the only two that they offered up on the Day of Atonement once a year. And they did that to what? To cleanse the people from sin? and to consecrate, to show the commitment of the people to be set apart for God's holy purposes as God's people. That's what, that was, that's what was going on on the Day of Atonement, right? Well, these sacrifices for cleansing and commitment are two of three categories of offerings in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to fully nerd out on you here, and we could totally, because it's amazing. Like Leviticus, I was so bored in Leviticus when I first started reading the Bible. I was like, why do we have to slog through all these details of how to sacrifice these different animals and all this stuff? It is so beautiful. It's not the words problem that I was bored. It was my problem. And now that I'm seeing like how this all points to Jesus Christ, it is phenomenal. So there's three categories of, of offerings or sacrifices in the Old Testament. We just talked about two. The third category is called fellowship or peace offerings. Uh, And these were simply for communion with God and God's people. That was the whole point of them. It's it's fellowship or communion with God and and God's people. So these fellowship offerings were voluntary. They weren't mandatory like the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the burnt offerings. They were uh, voluntary acts of worship symbolizing thanksgiving and fellowship with God. And get this, they included a communal meal. So you brought your animal to the priest. They took a little piece for the priest to eat. They burned the fat and some of the other intestines on the altar and the smoke went up to God. It was a pleasing aroma. God was pleased. God's priests were taking part in the meal. Then you got the biggest portion of the sacrificial animal back and then you basically had a a, a fellowship meal with God uh, symbolized by the priest eating part of it and the sacrifice on the altar But then you invited your friends, your family, the poor people living around you, the Levite living around you, and you just had like a like a party (laughs) and you just celebrated fellowship with God and with one another. Isn't that cool? Um, There's a communal meal. As New Covenant believers, we get to enjoy even a much greater fellowship with God. And we do this through Christ centered worship. The sacri- we don't bring an animal to sacrifice for a fellowship offering. We bring our sacrifices of praise and our sacrifices of love. And then we get to experience communion with God and with one another in Christ. So beautiful that we get to do that. Christ-centered worship. This section of Hebrews is especially challenging for me because it forces me to reconsider my understanding of what Christian worship is And folks, I've come to realize that by simply singing a song, we're not necessarily worshiping. Can you sing a song with words of praise to God and worship? Yes. But if your heart's not in it, do the words, the the verbal formulations that come forth from your mouth, is that worship if your heart's not praising God? No, it's not. But can we worship God in our words, in our songs, with the right heart attitude? Absolutely. When I share what I have, especially with others in our church family, 
that act of love is an act of worship that is pleasing to God. So I would encourage everyone to set aside time to worship by simply sharing what you're thankful to God for or sharing praises for who he is or what he's done. Do this at dinner. If, if you've eating with your roommate or having your family around the table, just everyone share a way that they're thankful to God. Some, some way that they see God as praiseworthy. And that can be a beautiful thing. Consider who God has put in your life also to sacrificially serve by sharing what you have with them, including your time, your money, everything else. Kids, you can do it too. Just at dinner, share a way that you've seen God's goodness. So under the old covenant, and I'll conclude with this, you could offer fellowship offerings to God. Pay attention to this. For the purpose of communion and fellowship with God and others. We talked about that. That's a fellowship or peace offering. We could do that. But listen, you could, you could also offer up burnt offerings to show your commitment to God. That was also true. And you could offer up sin offerings or guilt offerings, depending on the circumstance, for cleansing from sin. So you could have communion with God and others. You could show your commitment and con- consecration to the Lord. And you could, you could uh, be cleansed of sin through these three types of offerings. But according to the law of Moses, these offerings had to be made in a specific order. Can you guess what that order is? Can you guess what that order is? The sin offering always came first. The cleansing from sin always preceded the others. And then, and only then, it was followed by the burnt offering of that consecration to God's purposes. And once the sin offering and the burnt offering were given, then the fellowship offering could be offered. And a worshiper, in order to offer the fellowship offering, a worshiper had to be considered clean. That was really important. They first had to be cleansed of sin, and then they could be fully consecrated to the Lord, and so that they could enjoy communion with God and His people. This old covenant pattern has a new covenant equivalent in today's passage. Jesus has cleansed us from our sin. He's our ultimate sin offering. Nobody ever has to make another sin offering. He's done it. We are clean. And so what? So now Jesus has actually become the altar on which we can commit our lives wholly to the Lord. As Paul says in Romans, we can present our bodies as living sacrifices through the altar that is Jesus Christ himself. We can offer ourselves to God through Christ. And that's how we can show our commitment to the Lord. And then finally, we can also communicate thanksgiving. And we can offer an acceptable worship of praise and love to God through Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to look at our our last passage in Hebrews. And it's going to help us to understand this self-sacrificial love, these loving sacrifices in the context of our relationships with church leaders and the roles and responsibilities of church leadership. And that's where we're going to go next week. So let me pray.